Hello, and welcome to Lots of Familiar, the show that remembers that when Spinal Tap took part in Amnesty International's Big 3-0, Nigel Tufnell had to contribute via video link as Derek Smalls had blown up his house. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers, that no one else ever seems to, is historian and podcaster Tom Williamson. Tom, what are you up to and where can we find it? The podcast I do at the moment is called Retrospecticus. You can find us on retrospecticus.org. On Twitter, we're at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore because someone nicked the Retrospecticus Twitter account many years ago. It's a bit of a weird one, our podcast. We spend about 20 minutes talking about a Simpsons episode and then 20 minutes talking about a historical event which happened roughly the time the episode was first aired. So first episode of The Simpsons went out on December 23rd, 1989, I think, just a few days before Christmas. And a few days after that, President Ceausescu of Romania was shot and killed. And the downfall of Ceausescu is a fantastic story, which I really, really enjoy telling. We've also talked about other things to do with the fall of communism. And most recent episode was about the Camai Rouge. Talked about Clarence Thomas becoming a Supreme Court judge. All sorts of stuff but i've had kind of a weird way into history because i primarily identify as a skeptic really what skepticism is all about is asking questions and that's what historians do they ask questions about the past i don't know if you've ever seen lucy worsley's history's biggest fibs but she's absolutely great at explaining that history is not just a series of facts it's not just a bunch of stuff that happened people have got different ideas about what happened etc etc it's a very very broad church i mean i'm trying to get people more interested in history as part of the skeptic thing and people are which is great they're also interested in stuff like logic reason but this stuff often comes up in places you wouldn't expect so last year i took my daughter to see frozen 2 because she loves all the frozen stuff and i do too to be fair the movie's chugging along nicely and suddenly olaf the little snowman fellow he pipes up with did you know water has memory? And I went, what? I went, oh, no, no, no. Please don't tell me my kid's favorite film is going to be Peddling Woo. But immediately afterwards, he says, it's disputed by many, but it's true. Um, I'm thinking, hmm, OK, but, you know, put a little bit of doubt in there. And later on, he says, the water that you drink has gone through at least four other people and or animals. And the reindeer who's having a drink hears this and goes, bleh, spits his water out. But later on, I learned of a friend of a friend who's one of the animators on Frozen 2, and he's a skeptic as well. And he heard about this water has memory storyline. And he wrote a letter to the producer voicing his concerns because, you know, belief in homeopathy can be quite dangerous. If you've got something seriously wrong with you and you shun treatment that works for homeopathy, it can, you know, it can lead to very very bad things and he pitched some of the lines that i just said so when you watch frozen 2 just remember that there was a bit of a scrap going on between skeptics and believers behind the scenes i think that's amazing okay well i'm hoping that you never actually do a podcast tying modern history in with your first choice because i really don't like to think what the consequences of that would be so let's just hear the theme music from it and then we'll have a chat about it Okay, that wasn't the theme for the 
Cook report that was virtually identical to it. That was a theme from Nightmare, or rather Knightmare. This is a programme that I remember well without really ever having been that interested in it. Tom, it sounds like you were a lot more interested in it. Oh, definitely, definitely. So Nightmare was a kids TV show, ran on CITV from 1987 to 1994. So eight series, total of 112 episodes, written and conceived by a guy called Tim Child, which is a case of nominative determinism, if ever I saw one. So it saw teams of four children take on the dungeon and they were helped by Treyguard, the dungeon master, played throughout the run by a guy called Hugo Mayat, whose catchphrases became legendary. Dire warning team, when there was danger ahead, and if a team met their demise, the response would be, ooh, nasty. So you had one volunteer from each team put on the helmet of justice, meaning that they could only see what was directly beneath them. They would go into the dungeon and became a dungeoneer, relying on their teammates to guide them. Technology-wise, the dungeon was way ahead of its time. They would use green screen to place the dungeoneer in all manner of locations, from rooms filled with giant spiders to the infamous Corridor of Blades. And I absolutely loved it as a kid, even though the first episode I saw absolutely terrified me. One of the game mechanics was life force. So the idea was, as the dungeoneer progressed through the dungeon, their life force dropped, and they had to top it up by placing food in their little knapsack that they carried around with them. And their life force was always represented by some graphic... And it was the first generation of this graphic that really scared me. So to start with, it was a face wearing a helmet on a swirling green background accompanied by the sound of a heartbeat. You know, that's scary enough when you're a kid. But as the life force dropped, pieces of the helmet came off and floated away and the the background would turn orange. And then pieces of flesh from the face would start coming off, just just leaving a skull. So show for kids featuring, you know, this skull floating in the corner. Then the background would turn red, so the heartbeat gets faster. And then the skull starts breaking up. And the last part of the skull, which included the eye socket, would fly right at the camera, leaving just the eyes. When the contestant died through lack of life force, a bell would toll and the eyes would fly off past the camera, leaving nothing. It it was terrifying when I was a kid. I still have nightmares about it. The show could really, really get your heart racing. I mean, they'd often be racing to, you know, get a bit of food in their knapsack. And you'd often breathe a huge sigh of relief when they finally got it. And there were other things that got your heart racing, like the dwarf tunnels. So these were narrow, winding, real life tunnels, no CG involved. And you never knew what was going to be around the next corner. It was usually a friendly monk, you know, who, who kind of looked scary, but he'd always go, welcome, friend, or something. And then there was the goblin horn, a sign that the dungeoneer was being chased. And finally, there was the infamous corridor of blades. So the dungeoneer would enter a hallway with a conveyor belt on the floor and huge circular saws would fly at them, coming straight towards the camera. So in my childish eyes, they had to dodge the blades or they'd be sliced in two. Yeah, I was reading up about because I was slightly older when it started. And I kind of had a sort of, you know, been there, done that attitude to it. Because it felt to me like there'd been computer games along that theme, particularly on the ZX Spectrum. There'd been the fighting fantasy books and so on. And I was significantly older than the contestants. And it just seemed to me like a program full of annoying children (laughs) on some quite given what other things were doing at that point i mean i get that you know the actual interaction with the backgrounds was 
very innovative, but the actual look of it didn't look as good as things like, well, I mean, the Box of Delights are supposed to be a good analogy mm. there, but what I later found out and what made more sense visually was Tim Child actually based it on a ZX Stretching game called Attic Attack, which oh, is okay. a kind of top-down sort of running around a haunted house trying to get, I can't remember what you're trying to get, is it bits of an enchanted book? But anyway, or is it keys to get out? It's something you're collecting anyway, but to the right of the screen, your life force is represented by a roast chicken that slowly disintegrates leaving just the chicken bones the whole thing was inspired by that so it makes more sense it looked a bit more a year or two previously computery really but like i say i didn't really get it because i think it wasn't really aimed at me it was aimed at a slightly younger audience and the main thing i remember was we picked up the catchphrases but in kind of a shouting them at each other to annoy each other (laughs) like warning team there are goblins on this level will be shouted quite a lot (laughs) so i never got the affection for it that a lot of people seem to have and i should point out that you know the number of years it ran for the number of series and episodes good innings i'm saying but pretty much anywhere you look about it online people are still really angry that it got cancelled. Apparently the reason for the cancellation was the entire audience demographic had shifted and Children's ITV didn't appear to be appealing to that age group anymore and they thought let's replace it with something more targeted than what we've got now but people are still really unaccountably furious about that so I'm actually quite frightened to talk about it (laughs) more frightened than you were of the programme. One of the things about it that I think made people like it is it was notoriously difficult no one won it until the third series and when they did eventually win it you, you just you know you, you just had to take your hat off to the team that did one of the more famous episodes of it is is a little incident called simon's sidestep so a dungeoneer goes into a room and bits of the floor are starting to disappear and his guide says simon sidestep left and he sidesteps straight into a hole because the guy meant to say right instead of left <laughs> But that was it. They didn't They didn't give you a second chance. One of the things they'd do all the time was Dungeoneer would walk into a room and there'd be a table with three things. And the rules of the show said you could only carry two things at once. And you'd then talk to someone and they'd ask you questions and you had to get them right to get a clue. And if you didn't, you wouldn't get the clue and you had a chance of getting the wrong thing. So it'd be something like... There'd be a bar of gold, a small dagger, and a bottle saying Eye of Bat on it or something like that. And they'd leave the Eye of Bat, they'd go to the next room, and they'd come across a witch who would say something like, Oh, I'd love to let you past, but I need some Eye of Bat for my potion. Have you got any, have you? Oh, you haven't? Oh, well, you're dead then. Do you know how the effects were created for it? What inspired them? I'm not entirely sure what inspired them, but it was nearly all green screen with a mix of sort of first-person shooting, because in a later series they added something called the Eye Shield, which meant the contestants could see what the Dungeoneer could see or what was right in front of them, if you, if you know what I mean. Well, apparently Tim Child was originally a newsreader, and he got the whole idea for Nightmare when he saw green screen, or rather chroma key, as they called it in those days, being used for weather forecasts. Ah, uh, I see. This isn't really using this effect to its full potential, and that's <laughs> how he came up with Nightmare. I was quite impressed with that. But I wonder if one of the things about it, about people who are slightly older not getting it, might be there was a relevancy it had to kind of where the cultural shift had gone. By then, because the equivalent for me was the adventure game in the early 
80s, which was set in space. It was on the BBC. Originally, it was on first thing on Saturday mornings. It later moved to the early evening slot on BBC Two. It was very inspired by things like Hitchhikers. It was that kind of humorous approach to sci-fi. It was solving puzzles. That was kind of voguish then. But by the late 80s, you know, you've had the whole fighting fantasy thing. You started to get computer games becoming a much bigger thing even than they'd been in the early 80s, even, you know, in the original boom of home computer, because you started to get the really advanced, not just text adventure games, but the ones that combine text adventure with action, with movement as well. And I think that's where this stems from. And again, maybe it gets cancelled because that was kind of out of vogue by the early 90s. It was more, it had gone towards martial arts games and things then mm-hmm. by that point, hadn't it? Oh yeah, oh yeah, definitely. Things had moved on. I will say one of the things I used to like about it was for the first few series, it wasn't entirely clear where the Dungeon Master Treyguard's allegiances lied. So he'd help teams, but he'd, he often seemed to like revel in their deaths. There was an air of satisfaction when he did his, ooh, nasty. Later on, they added Lord Fear, who was played by a guy called Mark Knight. You know, another case of nominative determinism. <laughs> but he was a definite antagonist, and, you know, Treyguard became leader of the powers that be, I think they call them. They did really well with Lord Fear because they offered another element of danger, which was the spyglass. So people could use it to momentarily spy on Lord Fear, but it would soon work out what they were doing, and you started begging them to drop the spyglass before he put a curse on them or, or something. This show's quite personal to me because it was filmed at Anglia Television studios in Norwich which is round the corner from where I grew up and one of my mates claimed that his father was cameraman on the TV show I've scoured the credits and I've never seen his name did you ever see the Anglia night the station <laughs> yeah really well I didn't see it but I've seen it in a sort of history of Anglia TV that they put on one day it was just a little statue of a night that was rotating with some music and it it just went on forever you've not seen it in person though that's what I was hoping <laughs> oh I'm afraid not afraid not sorry <laughs> well Nightmare seems to be. I mean, this is another thing I don't really get is people endlessly trying to bring back things, but there seem to be endless campaigns to kind of remount it in some way. Would you participate if they did that? I don't think so, because they did a special on YouTube where they got Hugo Myatt back, and I think Mark Knight as well. And I just didn't I just didn't get the point of it. They did a good job, but there's one thing that I would recommend, which is a show called Nightmare Live. I've seen it at the Edinburgh Festival. It's some actors who are obviously nightmare fans and they don't try and recreate the show you know word for word scene for scene they create this interactive show with the audience as a a lot of audience feedback and they do a really really good job capturing the spirit of the show so i would really recommend going to see nightmare live if you're able to okay well i've no idea if anyone ever tried to bring back or indeed do a live version of the next choice which is another children's tv show but a very different kind of children's tv show will somebody please cue that voice He's the leader of the bunch. That's right. A heck of a fighter makes a heck of a lunch. Oh. And little polyester, who's never afraid of going into battle with the bad guys in vain. Here's Guido Anchovy, a wild romantic rover. This cat gets down, down with a love hangover. <laughs> They're so bad, they've got more fur than any turtle ever had. Stronger than old cheese. Stronger than dirt. <laughs> I 
villain who's lower than low. It's a rotten shame he lives in little Tokyo. We've got a nasty bad bird and some nasty ninja crows. As soon as someone finds a script, we might begin the show. Sit right back, pick up your feet, and turn the sound up high. And if you want the full effect, go eat a pizza pie. <laughs> Okay, I know those words, but not in that order. That's a thing for Samurai Pizza Cut, which I vaguely recall existing as a title. I think I assume it was just a joke about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but it sounds like it was actually a real programme, Tom. It was. You've got to brace yourselves, because this is a really weird one. When I was a kid growing up in the mid-90s, I had this vague memory of a cartoon show called The Samurai Pizza Cats. And when I watched it, I remembered how strange it was. There was always something really weird going on, like there was a woman firing rockets out of her hair or a giant monster going around turning people into sushi. I went through the rest of my life with this show in the back of my mind, but no one else seems to remember it. I remember talking to people at uni and, you know, students are always talking about TV shows they liked when they were kids, but no one seemed to remember this one. And I got to a point where I thought, well, I must have dreamed it then. This, this must have been a dream I had. And then you invited me on the show and, and I looked it up and to my great delight, I found that not only is it real, that all of the episodes are available on YouTube. Looking back on it now, the show is even madder than I remember it as a child. So it's an American production based on a Japanese cartoon from 1990 about a group of cats who sell pizzas by day and turn into crime-finding ninjas at night. And it's one of those shows where the translation of the original was either very bad or just not there. So the American writers just saw the footage and made up what was going on, a bit like the Magic Roundabout. What resulted was some of the most bizarre and creative writing I've ever seen. I mean, some of the character names are great. The cats are called Speedy Ceviche, Polyester, and Guido Anchovy. There's even some controversy over Speedy Ceviche's name because it, before it was written down, people assumed it was the Italian word for service you know pizza italian fast service it made sense but when people saw his name written down it was ceviche the, you know, the word starts with a c as in the raw seafood dish there's also one of the bad guys is called big al and his last name's dente <laughs> so he's done al dente which i really like but you know how some shows will occasionally break the fourth wall the samurai pizza cats demolished it with a wrecking ball so in the very first episode the villain says you don't have time to defeat me and one of the cats replies i've talked to the producer there's plenty of time they have this really odd way of getting getting around so the top of their pizza parlor is shaped like well a gun like a proper smith and western <laughs> and when they needed to get somewhere they'd hop in some pizza ovens which concealed the entrance to it and they'd get changed along the way a little bit like wallace and gromit and they'd drop into a big bullet each you know a proper bullet they didn't try to disguise it and the gun would raise up and then you have francine the owner of the pizza parlor would then operate the gun by firing it at their target launching the cats and of course you'd often miss and the cats would end up flying through glass buildings and demolishing chimney stacks that kind of thing Oh, and the woman who fired rockets from her hair, she definitely existed. And she's called Lucille, and she's a love interest for the male cats who sort of fight over in a Pepe Le Pew kind of way. It's a bit, yeah, it's a bit rubbish. But the very first scene where they fight over her, one of them uproots a tree. I'm not talking about a small tree. I'm talking about like a massive 20-foot oak tree. And he smashes the other one in the face with it. <laughs> he gets accused of not caring about the rainforests and gets called a neo-fascist feline for his troubles. But Lucille gets upset at them fighting and her hair opens up, revealing a box full 
full of little missiles, which she then fires randomly, leaving craters everywhere. It's the end credits that sum up the show for me, because they say, we hope you like the show. It's the best that we could do. If you could do better, then we'd leave it up to you. Well, I found that it's actually really difficult to find out anything about Samurai Pizza Cats itself, because it's the usual thing of, I mean, there is a, I'll come back to the company who actually did the translation for this in a minute, but there is kind of a thing about sort of Japanese anime, suitmation, puppet series and so on that were redubbed, but, you know, bought in by American companies and edited around, redubbed for showing in English, that people really don't want to accept that those versions existed. I mean, the big ones for me were Starfleet, Ulysses 31 and Battle of the Planets. Now, Battle of the Planets was based on kind of an adult anime series called Science Ninja Team Gatchaman. Because Battle of the Planets was kind of a bit sanitised because it was for kids, they put in some comedy robots, a bit based on R2-D2 and C-3PO. You cannot mention Battle of the Planets without somebody saying, ah, but did you know it was based on the Japanese series? And this is every reference to Samurai Pizza Cats online, including the Wikipedia page, is 99% about Cat Ninja Legend Teandi. I think I've said that correctly, but... Yeah, something like that. They just won't let it go. They won't remember the programme as they watched it, as they enjoyed it when they were children. It has to be this clever, clever thing behind it. And don't get me started now, I could go on for ages, but the translation for this was done by Saban Entertainment, who did a number of things around the summer. They did that really annoying cartoon of Bell and Sebastian, which is nothing like the 60s series, which is really haunting and melancholy and arty with that really desolate theme tune, and they kind of jollied it up a bit. There was that really creepy Pinocchio animation. Oh, God, everybody yeah. Everybody knocked to the floor going... Ah! Oh and that God, yeah, that's kind horrible. Of backwards theme music at the end as he kind of assembled and walked backwards. But this is nothing like either of those two. This is quite strange and surreal, really. Yeah, it's a really, really weird watch because you know that the writers are constantly taking the Mickey out of what they're seeing. Like the first time the bad guy appears, the big cheese, most of his time is spent complaining about how he doesn't have any eyebrows. The next episode, they kidnap a sushi chef, and the sushi chef for some reason when he's walking down the street he appears to have his eyes closed and he says I knew I shouldn't have taken that bet that I could walk home with my eyes closed the chances of me getting home safely are about as high as me not bumping into any evil crows then of course the evil crows turned up and kidnapped him really odd thing about it is I'd assume just in the you know when I saw the title years ago in the back of my mind it was kind of riffing on the popularity of the Ninja Turtles because you know obviously the samurai stroke ninja the whole pizza element but it appears to have just developed in isolation to that oh yeah I'm pretty sure it did they do make a lot of references to the turtles they even have a reference to the turtles in the theme tune but yeah even though it's you know ninjas pizza I think it was a Japanese thing that would have probably have been in production either just before the turtles were or just roughly the same time but yeah it's nothing to do with being a turtles ripoff it's very much its own thing and it's also interesting that whereas that got renamed teenage recent hero turtles over here this stayed the samurai pizza cats rather than i don't know polite low-fat vegan shit <laughs> 
use for gluten-free base cuts. I don't know. Yeah, it's one of the things I've never understood from my childhood, why in the late 80s, early 90s, British censors had a problem with the term ninja. Samurai is a different thing. I mean, I mean, when we think of samurai, it's either, it's easy to think of, you know, seven samurai of last samurai to think that it's a martial arts thing, but samurais were just a class of people in feudal Japan, so it doesn't necessarily imply violence, even though there's the samurai code. It's a little bit like being a knight. So if you're a knight, that doesn't mean you're definitely going to be riding a horse in armour and cutting people's heads off, but you might be. You know, it's a similar thing to samurai. Were you aware when you were watching it that it was, you know, it was dubbed, it was, I'm not saying necessarily spotted it was Japanese, but did you think there was something about it that was different that didn't quite add up? Not when I was a kid. When I was watching it, I couldn't quite believe what I was seeing. It was just that mad. When you see something like that when you're a kid and no one else remembers it, then yeah, you, you just you just doubt yourself. Well, in a weird roundabout way, which I'll come back to, that's given me a neat link in my own head into your next choice, which is a band whose music was used on a strange programme with a less enlightened view of Japanese television, should we say. But we'll come back to that in a minute. Let's just hear them in action and then we'll find out who it is. <laughs> Okay, that was Metal Fingers of My Body by Add N2 Brackets X. Tom, who were they? Add N2 X were an electronic band, I guess you call them that, who formed in 1994, and they were around for about 10 years. So the first album was called Vero Electronics, and it was released in 1996. That was followed a couple of years later by On the Wires of Our Nerves, which I really like, actually. I think it's a really good album. But they didn't really get any sort of commercial success until 1999, when they brought out Avant Hard, which is my favourite album of theirs. And the first song on it, which is the one you're referring to, is a really quirky little number called Barry Seven's Contraption. I think it's one of those songs that pretty much everyone has heard at some point, but that they wouldn't be able to name. Apparently it was also used on an orange advert, and yeah, it featured quite heavily on the Channel 4 show Bonsai. <laughs> Which really you can't mention in polite society now. It seemed okay at the time, but... Yeah, I haven't watched it for years. It's one of those shows where when it was out, I thought, can you do that these days? So we had Bert Kwok from the Pink Panther films and the Harry Hill show. So he was encouraging people to bet on things like which greenhouse window Mike Gatting was going to smash with a cricket ball, how long someone could shake hands with Chris Tarrant, or how long a celebrity would hang around after being asked one question, which I thought was quite a genius little psychology yes, yeah. thing. Oh, the, the, the actual stunts in it were fine. They were harmless. They were actually quite fun. It was just the styling and the overtones. Mm. I don't think it would play mm. well now, really. No, I don't think so. Barry Seven's Contraption. The tune goes... Doo, 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 and then there's all these funny little whirling whirring noises and it's sort of if ever dispatchers do something on scientists who's done something weird they'll they'll play that song on the trailer yeah i remember it's weird to think that add n to x well it's just like add n to brackets x now apparently the brackets were put around the x for legal reasons but i've been able mm. to find nothing more about that i would love to know who had copyrighted that mathematical formula how they <laughs> needed to change it but at one point it looked like they were going to be quite big i remember them particularly being played a lot by Marianne Hobbs on the Breeze Block. Mm, yeah. They were part of a wave of bands like that who went back to early electronic sound, combined a 
bit with easy listening, but not quite. They kind of had a lot in common with bands like Stereolab and Tortoise and Broadcast. Mm. They also use a lot of visual cues taken from a film called Demon Seed, which I just find that film inherently amusing in itself. So that kind of undermined them for me. But they were quite a good band. And they nearly, ne- they were one of those weird bands in the late 90s when people's minds were a bit more open after Britpop and the Big Beat thing and, you know, Firestarter being number one and so on. There were all these odd kind of dancey bands that almost broke through but never did. Mm. And it's a shame that London did. And these were right on the edge of yeah. becoming a more commercial proposition. I just don't think they made records that were quite commercial enough in the sense that I mean, you listen to the album, they pitched it at somebody like, well, somebody like yourself who wanted to hear an album like that. It wasn't going to tempt somebody who bought Be Here Now, maybe, just because of the order that the tracks were in and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But one of the things I wonder about Metal Fingers in My Body. Oh, yes. Well, yeah, that's a bit different. Yeah. Because I absolutely love it. It, it. It's an absolutely quality tune. But it was the video for it. The video caused quite a stir because, and there's no way of dressing this up, it's a lo-fi animation featuring a woman who orders a robot over the phone so that she can have sex with it that's what happens and of course there was no way that was going to be played on top of the pops so they really they really shot themselves in the foot with that you know what's the point of putting out a fantastic piece of music if you can't plug it because it's in no way family friendly yeah there is that thing like it's very rare that anything like that will break through i mean there are exceptions i mean the rough contemporary to that would be the man don't give a fuck by super furry animals which mm. i don't know how that became as big as it did because it wasn't played anywhere you couldn't even do a radio edit of that but it was a big hit but then you get things like i mean i've never been that impressed when people do you know a controversial record record and then re-record it for the radio like creep by radiohead like that beautiful south one don't marry her where either do it or don't don't mm. do it a nice version for some people and a nasty version for, <laughs> for other people should we say with videos it's even more of a problem because i would say a band like this kind of would have relied on videos a bit more to break through who was going to play their records heavily on the radio apart from john peel steve lamack and joe wiley maybe people like that you know you wouldn't really probably get Steve Wright playing it and so you were bound to make more of a splash on MTV or the box if you know <laughs> one of your fans is mad enough to keep dialing in for the video but if they won't show the video you're a bit sunk yeah exactly exactly and of course Adam to X went and shot themselves in the foot again a little bit later they released a single called Plug Me In which is quite a nice little it's not a banger like Metal Fingers in My Body is it's a nice little ditty but the video featured porn stars playing with sex toys it's like that's not going to get on top of the pops either what are you playing at? Is there even really a point to doing that in the video? I'm not quite sure that there is. What point are you trying to make with it? I've I no idea. I understand. I suppose there is that thing about it was still quite a new thing for a band like that to be anywhere near the mainstream. I mean, I think that's probably part of the reason why so many of the Britpop bands like Elastica, like Menswear, burnt out so quickly because they were probably just expecting to have a couple of minor hits be on the cover of the NME. Suddenly the headlining festivals, they're in the top ten they're being pressured to come up with more top 10 hits and I mean even Blur and Oasis lost it a bit you know so the landscape had changed but all these people that were coming through were still from that kind of relatively small world and I think probably that's where this lot came from and they probably weren't expecting so many people paying attention to their rather abstract ideas indeed okay we're moving on to a slightly different form of electronic music for your next choice here's a little bit of the soundtrack from it and we'll find out what it is in a minute
Okay, that was some very stirring music from Colonization, a 1994 PC game, which apparently was more properly called Sid Meier's Colonization. Tom, what was going on here? Colonization was a spin-off of a game called Civilization. Civilization series is huge. So the original Civilization was a turn-based strategy game by Sid Meier, and it was released in 1991. And in it, you take control of a fledgling civilization at the dawn of history, and you're expected to build it up, deal with other civilizations, or civs as they call them. You progress through the technology tree and eventually win the game either by conquering all the other civs or building a spaceship to get your people to Alpha Century. And the Civ series has been running ever since, and it's at least partly responsible for my interest in history. They're currently on Civ 6 at the moment, but I haven't played that yet. On a personal note, my favorite incarnation is Civ 4 with the Realism Invictus mod. Now, one of the big breakthroughs with Civ 4, which came out all the way back in 2005, was how extendable it was. So it was pretty simple for the community to make mods and really quite easy for casual players to just tweak the rules a little bit. So people came up with all sorts of mods where they put it in space or set it in Lord of the Rings type type world, that sort of stuff. But Realism Invictus is my favourite mod because it had a huge amount to the game. So one of the criticisms of the original game was how it sanitized a lot of history and Realism Invictus fixes a lot of that by adding all sorts of major events. So if you want, you can play as Hitler and lead Nazi Germany or perhaps Kim Il-sung of North Korea or even Pol Pot of the Khmer Rouge if you want to. But back to colonization, it was a lesser known spin-off. It was very similar to Civ, but it was set at a very specific point in time in history. So when you play it, you take control of settlers from a European power in 1492, the year that Christopher Columbus quote-unquote discovered America. And the aim of the game is to found colonies, explore the continent, trade with your homeland, have dealings with the native people, build up your power base, and eventually declare independence from the motherland. You know, so it's based on what happened in America from the time when they first colonized North America to when they declared independence from the British and subsequently won the Revolutionary War. So that's what's going on. I found the combat mechanics of it to be very, very simple. But what I really liked was the trading. So you can do things like harvest tobacco, cotton and sugarcane, then sell them back in Europe. But you'll make more money if you process them first. So if you turn them into stuff like cigars, cloth and rum. And in terms of history, it's really odd because the game sanitizes some things and not others so with native settlements you can learn new skills by living amongst them you can give them gifts you can trade with them and you can even send missionaries there so that some of them will convert and join your colonies but on the negative side you can also fight them and take gold from them accurately enough the spanish are the best at doing this because you know they took a lot of gold from the incas and over time the native settlements just start dying off of old world diseases which is very sad but totally accurate. You know, smallpox just decimated a lot of the population of Native America. But one element they completely missed out, brace yourselves for this because I'm going to be talking about slavery. And slavery is absolutely essential to understanding the history of America, really is. But there's two schools of thought on this. I mean, obviously, slavery was absolutely horrendous and it isn't nice to remind people of it, especially people who were affected by it when they're just trying to chill out, when they're just trying to play a video game. On the other hand, you can't just airbrush 
things out of history you don't like. One of the things that frustrates me a little bit about it is it would have been really quite easy from a programming point of view to put in that sort of mechanic because you have your ships and they sail between the map and they sail to Europe where they can pick up more colonists, you know, get stuff where you, you, know, you can sell stuff there. Instead, you could have them sailing to Africa and they could be buying slaves. And then you bring the slaves over and you get the slaves to work and, you know, you can have slave revolts, you can have free slaves, you could end up having a civil war, whatever. You could do all of that relatively easy in the game. They just backed away from it. So why do you think this didn't take off in the same way as civilization? I'm not implying it's because of the lack of slavery. <laughs> no, of course, of course. Um, I don't think it took off as much because it's a bit niche. It only really would interest you if you had an interest in the colonization of the new world, which is quite a specific time and place in history. Like In the original Civ, you can play as anyone and you can set up completely unrealistic things like you could play as i don't know china and go to war with the aztecs or something like that and you can have custom scenarios and you could take on any period in history you wanted you could do ancient greece feudal japan second world war whatever you wanted and colonization it is just the colonization of the americas and that's it and to be perfectly honest it isn't as fun to play as the original Civ, but it does have quite a lot of charm and quite a lot of you know quite quite old fun mechanics to it. So it's certainly fun, but it's not as good as Civ. Okay, well for your next choice, we're jumping on the colonisation boat setting straight for Glasgow. I'm fast forwarding a couple of centuries, really. <laughs> by Mogwai. This is a section I've been looking forward to for reasons that are going to become apparent and I do hope none of the band are listening but Tom tell us <laughs> more about Mogwai. Now I'm not going to defend what they said about Blur in the late 90s. We will if, come back to that. If that's what you're wondering about. Okay so this is an easy one for me because Mogwai judging them by their music are my all time favourite band. So they belong to a genre of rock that's called post rock and if you've not heard of post rock allow me to explain. So it's a form of rock music that's mostly instrumental and the emphasis of it is more on creating sort of moods and soundscapes rather than the traditional structure of most songs you played a bit of christmas steps it's a 10 minute epic i've no idea why it's called christmas steps because that title to me creates a vision of a child coming downstairs on christmas morning you know filled with joy and happiness and expectation and the track itself is really dark and foreboding and really angry at times because of this if you've heard post rock it's probably because it's been used as background music on a film or TV show. Best example I can come up with is from the film 28 Days Later. So it's about a zombie outbreak and there's a scene where someone walks through the streets of London and they are completely deserted. I mean, imagine that. What a nightmare scenario that is. <laughs> the music played during this scene is a track called East Hastings by the legendary Canadian post-rock band Godspeed You Black Emperor, a band that my word processor hates because the exclamation mark is after the U. Uh, anyway, back to Mogwai. So they started out in 1995 and they're still going today. According to their guitarist Stuart Braithwaite, they're named after the little fluffy things in the film Gremlins. They didn't plan to keep it as a name, but it really works, so it kind of stuck. You think about what the Mogwai does in the film Gremlins. He eats after midnight 
and then turns into this big, scary, mischievous monster. And a lot of their music's quite like that. It starts off quite quiet and then gets very loud and angry. So I think I first heard them on Steve Lamack's Radio 1 show when I was revising for my GCSEs, which would have made it about 97, 98, something like that. And the track I heard was Helicon 1. It's an absolutely beautiful piece of music. It's dead simple. It's just two chords. You know, it's that simple I can play it. But it's everything else around the melody that makes it great. And yeah, it's my understanding that they're not well liked in the music industry, probably because of their Blur Are Shite t-shirts that they put out in 1999 when both acts were headlining different stages at Tea in the Park. Well, this is where I've got to really be on the spot. Is Mogwire a band I should like? I should really, really like them. I like a lot of the contemporaries, like the beta band, like Godspeed, Black Emperor. But that whole thing just put me off completely. I could not even be bothered listening to them. It's because it's not just the unpleasantness of just shouting at people for daring to like something else. You might not like what's popular, but you can't legislate for that. You can't tell people you are wrong, even if it's like Mrs. Brown's Boys or something. If it's not doing any harm, people are going to like it and there's not much you can do about it. But it's the fact that it's not even an ambitious insult. It's just blur or shite. That is so lazy. You know, there was that horrendous remark Noel Gallagher made about blur, which really, it still annoys me now that he's allowed to get away with that. But even that, as nasty, as pathetic, as actually homophobic as it was, you could at least point to that and say he was going to cause controversy with that. I'm not saying that's a positive or even something in its favour, but it's something that made that sound, that made it into a notorious remark. Blur or shite is just... It's what somebody would write on your exercise book in school about something you liked, even though they didn't necessarily dislike it themselves just because they felt like causing trouble. Oh, yeah. yeah. It, it just put me off them completely. And I really am sorry, Mogwai, if you're listening, but kind of <laughs> sometimes that's how it pans out. He says in full awareness that there are things I say that put off large swathes of my potential audience who tend to be gentlemen on the particular end of the political spectrum who like old things. You don't like it when somebody isn't as, uh, as reactionary as them. You know, I know what it's like, but it's the risk you take when you do things like that. Oh, I can totally understand it. And yeah, I thought it, you know, even at the time, I, I just thought it was a bit of a bit of a lazy publicity stunt, really. And Blur, to their credit, didn't rise to it. And I don't think Mogwai have done anything like that since. And, you know, this, this was about 20 years ago. And Mogwai are one of those bands which they seem to have been around forever and they don't age. The coolest place I saw them was in San Francisco because I've got family out there went to visit them for a couple of weeks and just happened to see that Mogwai were there at the same time. Obviously, my wife didn't believe that for a second. She thought that we'd chosen the, uh, the dates because <laughs> Mogwai were there. Said, no, 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 honestly, honestly. In recent years, they've ended up doing a lot of film soundtracks. There's a film called Zidane, a 21st century portrait, which is all about the footballers in the Dean Zidane. But I think my favourite one, I haven't seen this film. I really want to. I don't know where I can find it. Atomic living in dread and promise and it's a film which is entirely made up of stock footage from like people's houses and streets and like domestic settings that sort of stuff from the cold war era when everyone was worried that america was going to nuke the ussr and the ussr was going to nuke america and everyone else would get caught in between and 
the music's really good and the documentary sounds absolutely fascinating but i've no idea where i can track it down well hopefully somebody listening will know where to get hold of it but how close do you think they ever got because i remember mogwai being very critically acclaimed and like you say getting a lot of play on things like the evening session on radio one they don't appear to have had anything approaching a hit single but in fairness they don't seem to have gone in for singles we say they're forgotten now is it just that their prominence has shifted to a different model a different everything works in a different way now would you say they were still as big as they ever were well i don't think mogwai were ever going to be mega famous they were always going to have a cult following because you can't say to someone here's a three minute track by mogwai go and listen to it it's really good you have to get and i'm going to sound like such a pretentious twat with this but you have to get into a certain mindset when you're trying to get into a band like mogwai you have to sort of take a moment to to realize what they're all about it'd be like if you were trying to get someone into i don't know death metal for the first time and you know you just played them some napalm death or something it wouldn't work you you can't just give someone something that is so so different from the mainstream and expect people to get it straight away it took me a while to get into mogwai it certainly wasn't a you know instant like to them it was only once I realised, oh, okay, so, so so it's all instrumental, and you might not have lyrics to concentrate on, you might not have a chorus to sing along to, but you can certainly appreciate the music for what it is and what they're trying to do. And if you've got a band like that, then they're never going to be a mainstream success. But when I was in the formative years, they headlined a lot of like second stages at festivals. The first time I saw them was at the Leeds Festival back in back in 2001, I think, and they made such a noise and with the right mood if you know they've been playing for 40 minutes 50 minutes whatever if you're really getting into what they're doing and they play their final track and they go into this white noise you are just standing there just thinking oh my god this is amazing but if you just drop someone into that situation they'd go it's bloody loud and it's horrible what are you doing <laughs> might even get a t-shirt please don't say mogwai bloody loud and horrible <laughs> yeah okay well we're going to move on from that to your last choice which has music in it by somebody who you could arguably as far as i'm saying call an earlier practitioner of post-rock but we'll come back to him in a minute right now i'm with Caltar at uh, copenhagen jim watson i'm kind of interested in genes dr wilkins what you said in conference talk that kind of excited me i'd really like to i mean that's where the action is going to be no question I, I don't fully understand. Are, are, are you doing work? Not work exactly. A few ideas. I'm one of the believers. Blessed are they who believe before there was any evidence. Right? Evidence for what? DNA. Okay, that was very clear. Jeff Goldblum with a bit of dialogue from Life Story. Tom, what was this? Life Story, also known as Double Helix, was a docudrama made in 1987. It was a joint production between the American A&E Network and the BBC with Mick Jackson from Horizon directing it. It tells a very important story from the world of biochemistry, which was the subject of my first degree, which I did back in York. It's about the discovery of the structure of DNA. And the big star of the film is Jeff Goldblum, who you've just heard there, who for some reason was always shown in close-up eating citrus fruit. No idea why in that film, but there we are. He plays the young and ambitious American biologist James Watson. And he's partnered with British PhD student Francis Crick, 
he was quite old for a PhD student at the time. They're there working together on the problem of DNA in Cambridge. And meanwhile, another scientist called Rosalind Franklin, who's played by Juliet Stevenson, she's an X-ray crystallographer and she's working in Paris. She's then given a fellowship at King's College London and she's directed to work on DNA because of the progress being made in the field by Morris Wilkins, who's played by Alan Howard. And she was producing the best images of DNA available at the time. And they were pivotal to working out the structure. And the film makes several excellent points, including the sexism that Rosalind Franklin faced. So she's repeatedly referred to as Miss Franklin, despite the fact that she's got a PhD and she was a world-leading authority in her field. There's also a men-only common room in Kings, which she's not allowed into. And it also examines different ways of doing science, which is one of the things I really like about it. Rosalind Franklin is, she's really thorough, she's really meticulous, she's making the point that you need to get all the data, you need to do all the work before you can start reaching conclusions. And Watson and Crick, on the other hand, are impertinent and they're racing to construct models before they have all the data. And this leads them to construct a model which is completely wrong due to James Watson mishearing a figure from Rosalind Franklin and putting less than a tenth of the water in it than it should have. But they also find that they are racing against legendary American chemist Linus Pauling to work out the structure of DNA. Now, this is a, is a little bit of a wonder, but Linus Pauling is someone I could talk about for hours. So he's the only person to have won two Nobel Prizes on his own. Only person to have ever done that in different fields. And the first was for the nature of the chemical bond. If anyone out there has done A-level chemistry, you might remember something called electron orbital hybridization, which is SP2, SP3, all that stuff. And Linus Pauling basically worked out all of that. He also worked out the alpha helix in proteins, which is, again, is really, really important. But later on, he laid a study that became known as the baby tooth survey. This is quite exciting because it's about nuclear weapons. He found that overground nuclear weapons tests were releasing radioactive strontium into the atmosphere. And strontium is an alkali earth metal, and it's in the same periodic group as calcium. So it has a lot of similar properties to calcium. And he found that it would go into the atmosphere and make its way into the soil where it would be absorbed by grass. Cows would then eat the grass. It would work its way into the cow's milk. Children would then drink the milk and the strontium would end up in their teeth. And when their teeth fell out, this radioactive strontium was still detectable. And because of Pauling's work, people stopped testing nuclear weapons overground. And Pauling won the Nobel Peace Prize for this. But unfortunately, in later life, Pauling would become a bit of a crank, believing that very high doses of vitamin C could cure the common cold without a shred of evidence. He also invented a whole absolute bullshit field called orthomolecular medicine, which said, right, you need to take vitamin A for this, vitamin B for this, vitamin C for this etc 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 and i'm not entirely sure but i'm pretty sure he's the reason why the multivitamin industry exists Linus Pauling himself and this is depicted in the film he did indeed to construct a model of dna but he got it badly wrong like embarrassingly wrong however as they knew Pauling was working on dna it spurred watson and crick into working on their own model which they eventually built on the work of rosalind franklin and various other people who provided clues to its structure so that's what the film's about yeah and it was quite a well-received film at the time it won the 1988 BAFTA for Best Drama, which makes it all the more surprising that it's disappeared. I mean, you're going to have no idea how hard it was to find a clip to use. The only time it's surfaced since the original broadcast, I mean, obviously it's been shown in America a couple of times, but the only commercial release it's had has been on an educational basis, where schools and universities can buy copies of it. There's never been, I don't know if it's a rights thing or whatever, it's definitely not any 
anything to do with anyone portrayed in it because I looked into that apparently the only complaint they had was Crick said Watson didn't chew gum and he chewed gum <laughs> in it and for that to be your only reservation about it it must have got it generally right but it's just really disappeared and the main reason I think that's a shame is as I was alluding to earlier the music is done by Peter Howell of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop because obviously it was a BBC production it was technically it was part of Horizon mm. which you know is usually a straight documentary series but they occasionally do odd things like this Peter Howell if anyone doesn't know him he, his most famous thing was probably he did the updated overhaul of the Doctor Who theme in 1980 and he was one of a number of younger composers that came into the Radiophonic Workshop in the very early 70s who were kind of all drawn from the progressive rock scene in fact he'd done some albums himself that are really collectible now the Alice in Wonderland one in particular they took that you know the disciplines they had from prog rock and applied it to electronic music but also brought in bits of classical music baroque music that sort of thing and he in particular did all these incredible scores for things like the body in question that Jonathan Miller documentary series he did some amazing music for he worked on a lot of documentaries during this time and his score for this is great and you can't get it anywhere that's a shame yeah, um, I, don't, I don't know if I should say this, but I found the whole film on uh, Vimeo, or Vimeo, however it's pronounced. That was where I eventually found it, yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's really worth watching, especially if you're into biology or chemistry or anything like that, because I remember seeing it before I went to university and just remembering, wow, Rosalind Franklin went through some, <laughs> she went through some horrible stuff to do what she did. Because one of the tragedies about it, especially with Rosalind Franklin, is so Watson and Crick as well as Boris Wilkins, were awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 1962 for their model of DNA, you know, even though the work was published almost 10 years earlier, because that's how the Nobel Prize works. And Rosalind Franklin didn't share in the prize as she had died, as she died of cancer in 1958, and they don't award Nobel Prizes posthumously. She does have a very well-respected legacy, Rosalind Franklin. There's loads of institutes and things named after her. But looking back on it, you just think she really should have been being honoured with a Nobel Prize, really. Francis Crick died in 2004, and in 2016, the Francis Crick Institute opened. It's one of the leading research science institutions in the in the UK. So he's definitely got a legacy. But at the time we're recording this, uh, James Watson is still alive at the age of 92. This is going to be a horrible thing to say, but just like Linus Pauling, probably one of the best things he could have done for his reputation was to have died in his 70s. Because, <laughs> and, and, and there's no other way of saying it, James Watson is a massive racist. And he believes that black people have lower IQs than white people for genetic reasons. And he believes that you can't say that because, you know, we live in a world where political correctness has gone bad. So, yeah. Can I just say you can't say that because it is idiotic. Well, yeah. <laughs> you should be beneath somebody who made that significant a breakthrough. But that's just me on my soapbox there, I think. I don't know if he's saying this stuff to just stay relevant or if he really believes it. But Linus Pauling came up with all the vitamin C stuff quite late in his life. And from what I've read, he did it because he was trying to stay relevant, because he was used to making massive, massive discoveries in all sorts of fields. And he hadn't done anything for a while. So he just so he just went, yeah, vitamin C, who's come cold? Yeah, deal with it. I'm wondering, I'm wondering with Jeff Goldblum, having played James Watson, whether that was fundamental in him getting that role he got in Jurassic Park, you know, which is a film which is all about DNA. Yes, and also he'd been in The Fly in, I think, 1986. So, you know, he's quite associated with DNA for some reason. <laughs> but if you compare him to all of them, you know, so they start coming out with these 
quite unpleasant, quite unpalatable, quite mad things as they get older. Jeff Goldblum's knocking on the bit now. He's playing the Grandmaster in Thor Ragnarok. He's <laughs> still in the Jurassic World films. He's not exactly going off the rails, is he? Exactly. And the other week he was on RuPaul's Drag Race, which I think goes <laughs> to show he might not be on the same page politically as the, as the gentleman depicted in this film. <laughs> but you may have heard earlier that I've got a five-year-old daughter and I got to name her Rosalind after Rosalind Franklin. So I'm happy with that. Well, that's a nice positive note to end on, given that some of the things that I normally put what I think will be the funniest choice last. <laughs> <laughs> we went into some unexpected areas there, but yeah, as you say, we've got out on an upbeat note. <laughs> so Tom, how long do you look at the history of DNA in retrospect? <laughs> Quite a while. I'm trying to think if there was anything important in the world of DNA. Oh, discovery of the polymerase chain reaction. That happened in the 90s. <laughs> That's a good that's a good point actually. I'll see if I can look that up. I really hope that ties in title wise with and Scratchy the movie. <laughs> it will be the longest time you've had yet. Tom, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for inviting me. Can't help thinking about me, like Tim Worthington. A big book full of old articles giving a new twist, looking at how and why I ended up on the BBC News channel with a big caption saying, Clangers Expert. More details, timworthington.org.